Hello everyone who's come here to watch Vantbox with myself, uh, John Clay. Um, if you've seen the first video of what we're going to do now, then you're going to be more prepped for what's going on. Though I do posit that if you find the issues of race and how they pertain to uh, hyper-reality, you'll enjoy what Alex Maisie has to say, who's joined us now. How are you, Alex? What's going on? Good. Um, full disclosure, John. Um, I'm three coffees down and um, it's not even half ten and I had chocolate drops on my porridge this morning so well thank you for your disclosure um, how, I mean how, how are things for you um, well I've had a succession of oranges and an apple yes. and water, but let's not do all that right now we're not like other podcasts or video channels it's not about us it's about the subject so let's get mm -hmm. into it um, I asked you a specific question pertaining to race and hyper-reality. In fact, you've got it written in front of you. <clears throat> I have, yeah. Yes. Um, I, I don't know how you want to go with it. So shall I, shall I read the question? Please do. Um, okay. Um, if we have this idea that we can't envisage talk about race, yet we can talk about issues of, say, safe spaces or sexuality, why do we treat one as less of a taboo than the other, dependent on who it is that's asking the question. Um, so I broke that sort of down into, I think the, let me see. Um, I'm trying to like do that thing where I can have the Word document on one side. Um, okay. So I broke the question down into sort of three. I think there's a lot going on in the question. Yeah. Um, so I question the presumption that we can talk about safe spaces or sexuality to a greater extent um, first. Um, you know, I think of someone who comes from maybe a very conservative or religious background probably will find it easier to talk about race than, say, their own sexuality. Um, um, and I'm, I'm moving forward from that. I mean, in terms of um, the, the conversations that these kind of things give birth to, um, I wonder about the genuine productivity of those conversations. Um, a lot can be said about the, necess uh, the necessity of safe spaces. Um, but that being said, I worry that safe spaces developed as a great way to exile people rather than have their wider concerns discussed or even recognized. Um, Consequently, we saw how safe spaces um, became a conversation about resources and territories rather than a conversation that acknowledged systems that perpetuate, for example, um, hurt and, and, and all those things. Um, it was a great way for the system to recontextualize the debate into a language that it understood. Um, so legitimate grievances that could be solved through, for example, greater resource allocation. Um, so that sort of deals with the assumption that was made at the beginning of the question. Um, to actually sort of answer this next bit, I think answers the question. Um, so the question reframed taboo, not as something we view through the issue itself, but rather through the prism of who was asking the question. Yeah. Um, if taboo subjects are ultimately about shame, uh, do we agree? I mean, taboo subjects is ultimately about shame. 
Yeah. Um, then I wonder if certain topics carry the weight of shame more than others with a level of shame that fluctuates depending on who is asking the question or answering the question. Um, so I think that um, answers the question there. I mean, I do have a, a sort of continuation of that. Um, I wonder if miseducation is largely responsible here. Um, for example, many people have the idea that to even, even consider something like racial um, differences in racial experience um, is itself racist. Um, Sorry, can you repeat that? So many people have the idea that to even consider something like differences in racial experience is itself racist. Ah, okay. Um, people are indoctrinated to think, perhaps through the presence of something like Carl Jung's collective shadow, perhaps through the operative workings of hyperreality, that to even consider a person from an alternative racial perspective that differs from your own, whilst that person is asking a question, for example, um, somehow becomes inherently racist. Um, if racism or even ignorance is also a moral crime, then to be either racist or ignorant, even within the level of the unconscious, is to admit a moral deficiency. And if we were to begin, even as individuals, to question or inspect our systems of morality, then we might find it replace, replaced with a hypermoral simulation, where it is enough, or at least equal in value, to exhibit a moral virtue rather than to actually live according to it. More, often, uh, more and more, it seems, in a culture of messages, the message perceived is more important than the message intended or the message made. Yes. So I hope that that was where I got to with that, that question. Wonderful. Um, we did agree off camera that we're going to have more of a conversation than mm -hmm. my, um, my usual Spanish Inquisition type mode. So <laughs> if you want to pick a certain aspect of what you've just read that yeah. perhaps toy around with, and I'm not, um, I'm not blasé about this. If you have a question for me, then we mm -hmm. can continue the conversation because I think we'll probably gain more from that in this. Yeah, I totally program. agree. So go for it. What specific? You, I, I mean, I, I wanted to ask you, do you, uh, do you think um, racism is a moral issue? Which Is that how you would class it? Is it something to do with morality? Well, it stems from an immorality. Its history is based upon classifying a section of humanity as being less than. And so, mm -hmm. therefore, if we do not consider the moral implications of this, um, this disease, then, yeah, we are doing the history a disservice and our ability to go beyond that history. Um, a great deal of work would be, have to be made there. So, yeah, I guess my answer is yes. Okay. Um, yeah. Um, from there, um, I would, I'd be inclined to ask you where you base your morality. What, what do you base your morality on? It's very simple. Um, I'm not an atheist as such, simply because I believe the idea of stating that is not something that I can truly give myself over to. I do not know everything about this universe. Mm, yeah, I, I agree. Yeah. So I'm, I'm quite happily agnostic, I guess. 
Um, where does my moral come from? Um, I think it's just about this really maybe cheesy idea of teamwork being like the only way to truly be happy. <laughs> anything that I can think about, anything has come from uh, an interaction, whether it be this conversation that I'm having with you, which is quite relieving, um, to a book that I'm reading, which has been written by someone else. There's teamwork going on there. There's mm, yeah, yeah. So my moral basis comes from the fact that ultimately working together makes sense. If I decide that a whole group of people can't be worked with, then there's got to be a significant reason why, and there shouldn't be um, a, a total uh, obfuscation of that truth. I should try and work through it if possible. You know? mm. So I'm morally obliged to have connections with people. Um, I can't live as a man on an island, I don't really recommend it. Um, obviously, there are moments when you need to get away from the group to understand something about yourself. We call that me time, right? Mm -hmm. We call it maybe walking through a field or on a bench with a book, you know, pre-COVID times. So, yeah. So you think your moral is derived sort of just from yourself? There are external factors. There will obviously be group think, there will be um, social awareness. Um, I'd like to know where you're going because I think that you are driving us somewhere. And I'm like, no, I'm, I'm, I'm trying, I'm trying, I'm, to be honest with you, I don't want to go there. I, I don't want to go there, you know, because I, I worry that um, when you start talking about these issues, you are, they, they ultimately boil down to mo their moral questions. Um, so I'm interested in, in, in that. Um, so I'm interested in, I, I suppose, how people formulate um, their morals. Maybe we should do our viewers and listeners um, more service in that mm -hmm. we should use your question and couch it in the very now. Um, we've had a man, uh, well, he's legally not of age, he's 17, and he's walked through a place in America, which I'm sure you've read about this situation, he has an assault rifle, his father is a first responder, the police seem to think it's okay for him to walk around with that gun. Uh, subsequently, he is killed. How does hyper-reality, um, how do we look through this case through the lens of hyper-reality? Because news anchors and media pundits don't seem to register Baldurard's concept, let alone know about your idea regarding that how do we view this case with that in mind i mean what uh, i i mean i try not to think about it in um individual cases i mean it, there's a lot that could be said about the media shaping um our perceptions in terms of a in in terms of a case and that's i suppose the nature of hyper reality you know how that simulation informs our perception more so than the actual the reality of of what happened well we have means now of this guy without mentioning the first responder father issue without mentioning how the police were made aware of him if that information was brought to light sooner perhaps those means wouldn't exist if not in that way we would have maybe a more nuanced conversation why is mm -hmm. it like given a certain prestige you know um yeah i mean you kind i think i wonder if you sort of hit the nail on the head there in terms of like the nuance um and i think the thing with 
hyper-reality is it's uh, especially in terms of um, media perceptions and media constructions is they the they have to lack that they have to sort of lack nuance and and subtlety and inflection um, to create a narrative that is that is usually going to result in in engagement in terms of uh, likes or comments or in this case memes. Um, so yeah. the that, the structure of those things themselves are are built in a way that don't facilitate um, reality. Yeah, because it's maybe. Um a scary concept to even voice because um, I don't really want to live in that world, but hey, here I am. All mm. use these tragedies as an engine for their own campaign, whether we're talking about that one person on Facebook or Twitter or that news pundit who was saying that it was a good thing that that guy had a gun to uphold the law when the police were unable to. Mm. What does that man have to say about himself when he's saying this that he's comfortable with yeah you know he's got a large platform um it's quite horrible um what are your thoughts on this um i mean like i said i haven't thought about the the situation specifically um because i try and um think about um overarching the overarching theory in which um we can make sense from sort of a top-down level. Um, but yeah, I mean, I mean, yeah, you probably got more to say about this than, than me. Okay. Um, well, what I want to do is I'll give you time to think about it because I don't want it to be me platforming that particular issue mm. without it being a conversation. Um, not really at all. Um, what I want to do is talk about your book a bit more. Mm. Um, there are so many good parts about it. And ultimately, as we discussed last time, the, the hyper-reality of this situation is that you're here to obviously sell it. But I'm also interested in talking about it so people do buy it. But I do want to do it in an authentic way. We did touch upon off-camera um, the idea of hip-hop. Um, you mention it quite a few times towards the end of your book because it's a form of music that you enjoy. Am I correct and say so? I mean, you say so in your book, but it's good to state it for viewers who haven't read it yet. Um, book coming out on October 30th? Yeah. Cool. Plug done. So what I wanted to do is how do you define hip hop? And where is it in terms of the black experience in return to your book? Um, yeah, so... I, I talk about, I mean, it's a variation of hip hop. It's lo-fi hip hop. And it's, um, I, I interview, essentially it was, it came from the, like you said, I enjoyed the music. Um, and I also found that no one was really talking about it. Um, except, um, and yet it seemed to occupy uh, um, something in the consciousness. Like lots of people were tuning in to, um, to listen to, music that was essentially um, made up of a variety of influences. And like you said, sort of like the black experience and um, you know, the, the history and nature of hip hop itself. Um, but lo-fi hip hop's are really, I mean, I'm, so, I'm sure some people will hear me say that and see it written in the book and go, oh, he's not talking about lo-fi hip hop. You know, this is, 
this and this and that. Yeah. Um, and do, do, does that make sense? And yeah, yeah. unfortunately, um, unfortunately, I think it boiled down to that was the label that the that I found most sort of adequate. Okay. Well, there's there's a lot of merit in tunneling further with this. If we look at what hip hop is supposedly going to define for pop culture and how you're mm. talking about it, there is some room to be said that if you're talking about say something like rock and roll to the black experience, people don't normally connect those two straight away anymore either due to how that term has been reappropriated yeah. to other artists. So um, where I'm going with this is this, that you describe lo-fi hip hop in terms of the artists that you were interviewing in the latter part of your book without really truly mentioning the black experience. Did you, mm -hmm. were you aware of that as it was happening or has hip hop been assimilated into something which is for want of a better way of saying it more Caucasian? I, I would go with, with the latter there. I mean, I, I think I interviewed three artists on lo-fi hip hop. They're all Caucasian. I mean, that, that enough should probably say something. Um, I, yeah, I mean, there certainly is a sort of assim, assimilation. And um, one thing I, I think we, we do see now is, I, I think, I think lo-fi hip hop had a, a big problem because of the, the whole copyright thing. People would sample um, and, and take um, samples from things that they had no permission. You know, there was no, um, so for me, it was a, a direct challenge to, um, to people, to like um, people who claimed uh, a creative ownership over things. Um, but yeah, I think that's a, I mean, that's a legitimate criticism. And if you sort of occupy, um, when I interviewed Axion, we, we talked a, a great deal about um, the histories of hip hop. And um, well, I think Axion is, can you give us a little kind uh, of. So he, uh, personally, I think he was one of those, one of the very first um, producers to really start pushing lo fi hip hop. So I think he had the, um, a video on YouTube. I, I want to say it's got like several million views, um, Dozing Off, I think it was called. That was how I discovered the music. Um, and it was, I came at that music through Vaporwave, right. which, which itself was um, a sort of deadpan recontextualization of um, corporate music that was made in sort of the 80s and 90s. And it was like co-opted by sort of a, a very revolutionary um, urge to, to take that away from them. And, and, and make something new and to, and to also um, to show people that just like the nature of the simulations that came to dominate life in, in for example, the, throughout the 80s. Um, sure, sure. So, so that's how I came to something like lo-fi hip-hop because, because it was better. Like I, 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 I like um, hip-hop. It's something I grew up with. Um, so when I saw um, the, the sort of like the recontextualization of all these different things, a lot of the things that they, they sample are, are things from my youth. So it, it was coming at an angle of like nostalgia. And um, of course, hauntology plays a large part of this. The idea that our generation have, were promised a future that we were never given. Um, so, 
for me, um, that's how I came to lo-fi hip hop. And that's, that's sort of why I enjoyed it to the, to the extent that I, that I do. Um, and of course now the other issue is you have the, the saturation, uh, people have money men have come on board now and they've stripped, they've almost stripped the whole scene of like the sampling nature because it, it, it was, it was not geared towards making money. Sure. Um, but now I think you can hear like lo-fi hip hop on like a, an advert. Um, I see them on YouTube now, like, I don't know, like a bank or something will have like a, a very like hip hop inspired um, backing track or something. Uh, yeah. I, I actually think that was an advert where like a guy's like, they were like talking about what music people like. And he was like, Oh, lo-fi beats to relax to i mean so you talk about something being simulated i mean there you have it really i mean a major bank taking something like that and using it and then stripping of stripping it of all meaning yeah i would say that you and i would be Obviously, we're not happy about that, but we know it's happening and we know it's going to continue happening. But yeah. because you have an attachment to the music, it will still knock you for six when you see it, right? It's like, whoa, really? And it's like, yeah, of course. Yeah, uh, but it, that's the thing. Like, I hit, when I'm sort of, I'm in a lot of groups um, and I'm just like interested in the scene and I see so many people being like, oh, it's dead now. The scene's dead. And like, Oh, it's gone now. It's pointless making another lo-fi hip hop song. And I'm like, no, like just because they've co-opted it, like doesn't mean we can, we can like not go back to like what it was about and like try and keep that flame alive. Um, yeah. uh, otherwise, you know, they're going to just keep doing this forever. Sure. Every, every, com every creative impulse we ever have is going to be co-opted um, and, 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 sold as a product um and it, the day we go okay well they've done that um i mean it's a great strategy of the system isn't it to to take any any revolutionary impulse any kind of um fracturing of reality that a, a prism of creativity can provide it's it's a fantastic um mechanism in which to 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 remove everything yeah, it's the one good idea in the second Matrix movie. That <laughs> yeah, that's a bad movie. Like, I, I, I like the first, I mean, the first one's like probably the greatest film of the last century. The last, oh, the really? final last, the final last great film. I think it oh, came really? out in like 99 or something. Okay. Um, I might be wrong. But when I, I used the did. truth, I could have said that in a pub after two pints because I'm that much of a lightweight. But I don't think I could say it now, even drunk. <laughs> <laughs> you um, haven't seen the four beers I've had. Uh, <laughs> with the coffee. No, yeah, with all the coffee, yeah. Um, but the second film's bad. I mean, what did you think of the third one? Um, terrible. Um, and yeah. I don't want to go completely off topic. We'll nerd out very soon. Um, I wanted to talk about um, unwittingly causing erasure to an oral history that is hip-hop and mm -hmm. make no mistake about it you've seen my posts and what I write about musically I am just about a tourist in that field so you get to guide us in this conversation but I come in as a tourist asking you is there a conversation between you and your lo-fi buddies about the 
possibility of erasure of where lo-fi hip-hop comes from? I mean... Yeah, I, mean I, I would say there's a lot of um, conversation about, you know, uh, sort of kids, there's that kind of like, that boomer-esque mentality of like these kids in their rooms, they, they're making this lo-fi hip-hop, but they don't know anything about um, the, the history of the, or the culture or like where it came from. So you, yeah, I mean, you get that. And I, it's meeting it halfway, isn't it? Because I think there, there comes a point where it stifles creativity because um, people go, oh, fuck, like I'm, I, I don't know anything about what they're talking about. So I'm, I'm going to like not touch this. Um, but at the same time, you've you got to have those like old heads there being like, look, guys, um, you know, this music comes from this tradition. Um, and also like we need to move over this idea that like um, things exist in a vacuum. I think loads of people are like, oh, I'm, su you know, you asked me a question in our last interview, like do about like, oh, deriv derivative copycat works. You know, the, the idea that like my book is somehow this thing that was birthed into creation in a vacuum is just, just seems silly to me um, in retrospect. And yet we search for it, don't we? We, yeah, we, yeah, yeah. A, like the community, not just you and I, but we, we're looking for that thing which is original, constantly. Yeah, constantly original. Yeah, I mean, I works. just the, the book I'm writing now, um, I've been watching and reading like loads of stuff about David Lynch um, and people sort of talking about him creating his films in a vacuum, like that he was, he, that there is, there is no debt to like Hitchcock. Um, and then you go and read someone like um, David Foster Wallace's um, article on, on Lynch and what it means to be Lynchian. And he, he makes it quite clear that like there is a debt to be paid to, to directors um, to a, and to a history of film and to a history of art and avant-gardism. Um, but, but still people are like, oh, you know, it's, it's like this box that like, it's so creative and so original. Well, they want that box. They, they want to believe that they were part of a time when they had something special to call their own and therefore yeah. they yeah. will be able to be 80 years old one day and tell grandkids that, hey, we had this, you know. That's yeah. the whole thing. Um, it's that whole... Christopher Columbus algorithm of trying to discover something. New. Yeah, God. Yeah, that, I mean, maybe that's where it comes from, that idea of like... Definitely. Um, I want to understand, before tying up, how to promote more about what I've read in your book without spoiling it. It's only 80 pages, mm. and yet there's so much in there. Um, should we talk about Harry Potter? I mean, I quite liked your um your analysis i mean it was optimistic compared to mine i mean just uh, maybe we should just highlight the fact yeah. that i i said um one thing i wanted to happen at the end um was i think harry needed to kill someone i think he needed to be compromised to understand the sacrifices that have to be made to um to try and favor evil um i also am tempted to claim that i think someone like ron hermione should have should have you know, we, we should, but uh, I think you had a good interpretation of, well, because of that, which is far more optimistic than mine. Um, yeah, um, we are going a lot of, this is kind of off road, but we're going to do it quickly because it is. Let's go there. There is no road. Um, the idea about Harry Potter killing, I didn't agree with because his story is about realizing 
love as being this all-powerful alchemical force to take something horrible like him being the child that lived into being like this this victor over the, he shall not be named <laughs> so yeah um i don't think him kidding helps his emotional arc or internal story arc make sense and i did joke and i, I still hold it <laughs> hold it to heart that you were probably in the writer's room for the Man of Steel movie because why is Superman killing people? I don't get it. Um, it's, it's not the character. Um, but yeah, I, I do want to, to tie this up now because we've spoken quite a bit. It goes very quickly. It does, um, yeah. And I think that the best way to tie this up, obviously by mentioning that your book is out again on October 30th, um, would you say that there's a part of the book that you really want people to really get into? You don't have to give away too much, but is there aspects of the book where when you reread it, you think, yeah, this is the hot spot of what I'm talking about. And this is why it's valuable for society as we, as we um, I quite liked the adventures in hyper-reality chapter when I talk about um, getting off a train in Manchester and being bombarded by signs and, um, symptoms um and i always had it in my head that that would make for a, a good book you know the idea that you could just write a book sort of going from town to town place to place um sort of analyzing the world through through a lens that takes into consideration like sign value hyper reality um simulacra all of these things um so I, I, I mean, I enjoyed writing that, that, that part. Um, it was good to read concerning, um, again, Harry Potter in terms of yeah. when you come out of that station, you're, you, what, was, what station is it? So, so I, I talk about two cities. I talk about Please. Manchester as like the Northern powerhouse of the UK. And I, talk, I want to talk about a plutocratic city like Oxford, which um, it feels like a, a different world when you go there um, compared to somewhere like Manchester. And I wanted to stay away from um, somewhere like London. Uh, I didn't want it to feel sort of London centric. Um, so I talk about uh, the train station is in Manchester, Manchester Piccadilly. Yeah, yeah. Um, and that whole nostalgia for a time that never actually existed um reselling very yeah. elements of uh patriarchy um and establishment and british norms um to a whole new audience in order to maybe convincingly yeah. convey those ideas to their loved ones and their kids and continue that tradition um which really is uh another form of erasure. There's so much we can talk about regarding race and hyper-reality, but we've run out of time. <laughs> we will come back to this, I think, at another time, if that's, if that's something you're comfortable yeah. with. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, feel free to ask me back, yeah. Cool. I'm Great. more than happy to talk. I, it's, I feel like it's productive. Um, I, I wouldn't do it if I didn't feel like, if, if I felt like we were sitting here like being trite and banalizing the issues then I, I wouldn't do it um, but I, I like to think we don't do that yeah so. indeed. This, this is a it is a safe space for me um to talk about these issues with you I mean there's only so much you can do in a thread on FB there's just too many mm. 
interesting people with issues. Thankfully, this has been good. Um, can people find you on the, in the, on the interwebs? Where do they go? Give us information. They can. Best place is probably um, Twitter, um, Alexander Maisie, um, or Alex Maisie, M-A-Z-E-Y, or Instagram, uh, same thing. Um, yeah, I'm sure if you, if you, if you want to find me, you'll find me, you know. Um, what about you, John? Where can we, where can we find um, you? Oh, you're not obliged to ask me that. This is the problem of not having a co-host anymore. Deanna, we miss you. Please, <laughs> please, please, please. <laughs> One day, maybe 10 years from now, a lot sooner, come back. Um, if you want to find more videos about Rantbox TV, just put hashtag Rantbox TV into your Google search drive and you should find something. It's not really worth finding me, but these videos will do well if you basically check them out and hopefully might answer some questions that you have. If not, you know, maybe you want to posit some questions to us. That'd be great. Thanks for now. Goodbye. Stay well. <laughs>